Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at morbidlybeautiful.com. We all have a lot of time on our hands nowadays, so you may as well go check out what they have to offer over at Morbidly Beautiful. If you're a fan of horror, and I assume you are if you're listening to this podcast, then you will love everything on that website. Go check it out now for all your latest news and pop culture stuff in general. Also, before we get started, I do have to dedicate this episode to a special friend of mine. Her name was Evie. She was my cat. And sadly, just a couple of days ago, she succumbed to a brain tumor, and we had to put her down. It was devastating as this cat was 21 or 22 years old and a huge part of mine and my wife's lives. I will miss her. She was a good friend and a good cat. And it's sad, but that is kind of how life works. So this episode is dedicated to my beloved Evie. May you rest in peace. The episode today is a topic I've somewhat touched on a few times in the past. If you are a frequent listener of this podcast, then you will know that I do have a propensity to talk about vampires every now and again. Now, I can't remember the last time I actually talked about vampires on this show, but it's been a while. But that doesn't mean my love for them has dissipated in any way, shape, or form. They are still a very fascinating and unique piece of culture and, well, cryptid of sorts as well. It's hard to talk about vampires without ever really going into the one big baddie who may or may not have a place in the real world. I am, of course, talking about Dracula. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Now, purely fictitious and literary characters aren't usually something I talk about on this program too often. Every once in a while, I'll drop a reference or something for reference based on whatever creature I'm talking about. But Dracula has such a huge presence in popular culture and in history, it's kind of hard to ignore the impact that the character has had as a whole on vampire culture and gothic culture in general. Now, we all know the story of Dracula and Van Helsing and how it was written by Bram Stoker and so on and so forth, and many people assume that the character was based off of somebody called Vlad Dracul or Vlad Tepes, who was a prince of Wallachia in the 1400s. Well, maybe not. He might not actually be a true reference point for the Dracula myth, but we'll get into that. First, let's talk about Dracula as we know it, as a book, and as a character in general. Now, a lot of this information will come from a few different websites, the first one here being bram-castle.com slash Dracula. Now, if there's a site on the internet that knows something about Dracula, I would hope it's from something called Bran Castle. Well, let's go on. Let's continue and read what they have to say on the matter. The character is often confused with Vlad Tepes, or Vlad the Impaler, sometimes known as Vlad Dracul, and he was, as previously mentioned, a Wallachian prince with a castle, now in ruins, located in the Principality of Wallachia. 
because Bran Castle is the only castle in all of Transylvania that actually fits Bram Stoker's description of Dracula's castle. Chapter 2 of Dracula describes the Count's castle as, quote, on the very edge of a terrific precipice, with occasionally a deep rift where there is a chasm, with silver threads where the rivers wind in deep gorges throughout the fortress. It's important to note here that Bram Stoker never actually visited Romania, which is modern-day Wallachia. He depicted the imaginary Dracula's castle based upon a description of Bran Castle that was available to him at the turn of the century in Britain. Indeed, the imaginary depiction of Dracula's castle from the etching of the first edition of Dracula is strikingly similar to Bran Castle and no other in all of Romania. Stoker is widely purported to have used the illustration of Bran Castle in Charles Boner's book, quote, Transylvania, its product and its people, to describe the imaginary Dracula's castle. Dracula, as he is perceived today, is a fictitious character whose name derives from the appellation given to Vlad Tepes, the ruler of Wallachia from 1456 to 1462 and 1476, and who, for largely political reasons, was depicted by some historians of that time as a bloodthirsty and ruthless despot. Stoker's character, Count Dracula, first appeared in the novel Dracula, published in 1897 in England by the Irish writer Bram Stoker. But the name Dracula, far from being a frightening term, derives from the Crusader Order of the Dragon, with which order both Vlad Tepes and his father had been associated. The rest of the Dracula myth derives from the legends and popular beliefs in ghosts and vampires prevalent throughout Transylvania. Stoker's Count Dracula is a centuries-old vampire, sorcerer, and Transylvanian nobleman who claims to be a Shekli, descendant from Attila the Hun. He inhabits a decaying castle in the Carpathian Mountains, in his conversations with the character, Jonathan Harker, Dracula reveals himself as intensely proud of his boyer culture with a yearning for memories from his past. Count Dracula appears to have studied the black arts at the Academy of Scholomance in the Carpathian Mountains near the town of Sibiu. While Stoker named his Transylvanian Count Dracula, he was careful not to suggest an actual link to the historical character of Vlad Tepes. While Stoker's character Van Helsing muses as to whether Count Dracula might be the Voivode Dracula, he obviously is not, since Count Dracula of Transylvania is plainly not Prince Vlad Tepes of Wallachia, and Stoker was disinclined at all to make his character a real person of historical significance. In the villages near Braun, there is a belief in the existence of evil spirits or ghosts called Strigoi. Now you may remember Strigoi being mentioned in one of my previous vampire podcasts where I read from the Vampire Hunter's Guide, which is a little handbook about how to hunt vampires. Very interesting read. You should probably check it out. Now until half a century ago, it was believed that there existed certain living people, the Strigoi, who were leading a normal life during the day, but at night... During their sleep, their souls left their body and haunted the village, tormenting people in the night. These evil spirits haunted their prey from midnight until the first cockcrow when their 
power to harm people faded. The undead, i.e. ghosts and vampires, suffer from the curse of immortality, writes Stoker. They pass from one period to another, multiplying their victims, augmenting the evil in the world. End quote. The Dracula character derives from these local myths. As for Vlad Tepes, the ruler of Wallachia, he does indeed have an association with Bran Castle. Vlad was involved in several campaigns to punish the German merchants of Brasov, who failed to abide by his commands as regards their trade in his Wallachian markets. Passage to Wallachia was through Braun, the closest gorge to Brasov, which connects with Traskrovist, Vlad Tepes' capital. The original customs house at which taxes were collected from merchants entering Transylvania are still at the base of Bran Castle. The relationship with the Bran lords were not very cordial, as they were representatives of the Citadel of Brasov, which were hostile to Vlad the Impaler. It is not known if Vlad Tepes captured Bran Castle. Written documents do not describe it. The documents that do exist in archives with regard to Bran Castle are mainly administrative and refer to the income and expenditure of the domain of the Braun Fortress, with little mention of political and military events. However, in the fall of 1462, after the army of the Hungarian king Matai Korvin captured Vlad Tepes nearby the fortress of Podul Dambovitiai, near Rukar, it appears that Vlad was taken into Braun Castle and locked up for two months. This is affirmed in the recent volume Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, published by the Mirador Printing House in 2002. So there we have one side of the story. Was Vlad really not at all the basis for the Dracula character? Sure, the castle may have been a bit of a inspiration, but was it really the true personification of the Dracula character? It's hard to say. So therefore, we have to look at other accounts, other people's opinions and perspectives on Dracula. Now, this article I have here about the real, quote-unquote, real Dracula, Vlad the Impaler, comes from AliveScience.com, and it goes as such. Few names have cast more terror into the human heart than Dracula. The legendary vampire created by author Bram Stoker in his 1897 novel of the same name has inspired countless horror movies, television shows, and other blood-curdling tales of vampires. Though Dracula is purely fiction, Stoker named his infamous character after a real person who happened to have a taste for blood. Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia, or as he's better known, as Vlad the Impaler. The Mormon nickname is a testament to the Wallachian prince's favorite way of dispensing his enemies, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But other than having the same name, the two Draculas don't really have much in common, according to historians who have studied the link between Stoker's vampire count and Vlad III. Now a little bit more about the quote-unquote real Dracula here. Of course, we're talking about Vlad the Impaler or Vlad Tepes or Vlad Prince of Wallachia, whatever you want to call him. By most accounts, Vlad III was born in 1431 in what is now Transylvania, the central region of modern-day Romania. However, the link between Vlad the Impaler and Transylvania is tenuous, according to Florin Kurta, a professor of medieval history and archaeology at the University of Florida. Quote, Stoker's Dracula is linked to Transylvania, but the real historic Dracula, Vlad III, never owned anything in Transylvania, Kurta told Live Science. Brand Castle is a modern-day tourist attraction in Transylvania that is often referred to as Dracula's Castle. 
and it was never the residence of the Wallachian prince. Quote, because the castle is in the mountains in this foggy area and looks spooky, it's what one would expect of Dracula's castle. But he, Vlad III, never lived there, never even stepped foot there. Now Vlad's father, Vlad II, did own a residence in Sysora, Transylvania, but it is not certain that Vlad III was born there. It is also possible that Vlad the Impaler was born in Tragovoste, which was at the time the royal seat of the Principality of Wallachia, where his father was a voivode, or ruler. It is possible for tourists to visit one castle where Vlad III certainly spent time. At about age 12, Vlad III and his brother were imprisoned in Turkey. In 2014, archaeologists found the likely location of the dungeon. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, Tokat Castle is located in northern Turkey. It is an eerie place with secret tunnels and dungeons that is currently under restoration and open to the public. Well, I guess not currently because of coronavirus, but you know, you get the point. In 1431, King Sigismund of Hungary, who would later become the Holy Roman Emperor, inducted the Elder Vlad into a knightly order, the Order of the Dragon. This designation earned Vlad II a new surname, Dracul. The name came from the old Roman word for dragon, Drac. His son Vlad III would later be known as the son of Dracul, or in old Romania, Dracule, hence Dracula. In modern Romanian, the word Drac refers to another feared creature, the devil. According to Dracula, Sense and Nonsense by Elizabeth Miller, in 1890, Stoker read a book about Wallachia. Although it did not mention Vlad III, Stoker was struck by the word Dracula. He wrote in his notes, quote, In Wallachian language means devil. It is therefore likely that Stoker chose to name his character Dracula for the word's devilish association. The theory that Vlad III and Dracula were the same person was developed and popularized by historians Radu Florescu and Raymond T. McNally in their 1972 book, In Search of Dracula. Though far from accepted by all historians, the thesis took hold of the public imagination, according to the New York Times. The Order of the Dragon was devoted to a singular task, the defeat of the Turkish or the Ottoman Empire. Situated between Christian Europe and the Muslim lands of the Ottoman Empire, Vlad II's and later Vlad III's home principality of Wallachia was frequently the scene of bloody battles as Ottoman forces pushed westward into Europe and Christian forces repulsed the invaders. When Vlad II was called to a diplomatic meeting in 1442 with Ottoman Sultan Murad II, he brought his young sons Vlad III and Radu along. But the meeting was apparently a trap. All three were arrested and held hostage. The eldest Vlad was released under the condition that he leave his sons behind. Quote, the sultans held Vlad and his brothers hostage to ensure that their father Vlad II behaved himself in the ongoing war between Turkey and Hungary, said Miller, a research historian and professor at the Memorial University of Newfoundland here in Canada. Under the Ottomans, Vlad and his younger brother were tutored in science, philosophy, and the arts. Vlad also became a skilled horseman and warrior, according to Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally, former professors of history at Boston College, 
who wrote several books about Vlad III, as well as his alleged connection to Stoker's Dracula in the 1970s and 80s. They were treated reasonably well by the current standards of time, Miller said. Still, captivity irked Vlad, whereas his brother sort of acquiesced and went over to the Turkish side. But Vlad held amenity, and I think it was one of his motivating factors for fighting the Turks, to get even with them for having held him captive. While Vlad and Radu were in Ottoman hands, Vlad's father was fighting to keep his place as a ruler of Wallachia, a fight he would eventually lose. In 1447, Vlad II was ousted as ruler of Wallachia by a local nobleman and was killed in the swamps near Baltini, halfway between Tragavoste and Bucharest in present-day Romania. Vlad's older half-brother, Mercia, was killed alongside his father. Not long after these harrowing events, in 1448, Vlad embarked on a campaign to regain his father's seat from the new ruler, Vladislav II. His first attempt at the throne relied on the military support of the Ottoman governors of the city alongside the Danube River in northern Bulgaria, according to Kurta. Vlad also took advantage of the fact that Vladislav was absent at the time, having gone to the Balkans to fight the Ottomans for the governor of Hungary at the time, John Hunyadi. Vlad won back his father's seat, but his time of ruler of Wallachia was short-lived. He was disposed after only two months, when Vladislav returned and took back the throne of Wallachia with the assistance of Hunyadi, according to Kurta. Little is known about Vlad III's whereabouts between 1448 and 1456, but it is known that he switched sides in the Ottoman-Hungarian conflict, giving up his ties with the Ottoman governors of the Danube cities and obtaining military support from King Ladislao V of Hungary, who happened to dislike Vlad's rival, Vladislav II. Vlad III's political and military tack truly came to the forefront amid the fall of Constantinople in 1453. After the fall, the Ottomans were in a position to invade all of Europe. Vlad, who had already solidified his anti-Ottoman position, was proclaimed ruler of Wallachia in 1456. One of his first orders of business in his new role was to stop paying an annual tribute to the Ottoman Sultan, a measure that had formally ensured peace between Wallachia and the Ottomans. To consolidate his power as ruler, Vlad needed to quell the incessant conflicts that had historically taken place between Wallachia's boyars. According to legend that circulated after his death, Vlad invited hundreds of these boyars to a banquet, and knowing they would challenge his authority, had his guests stabbed, and their still twitching bodies impaled on spikes. This is just one of the many gruesome events that earned Vlad his posthumous nickname, Vlad the Impaler. This story, and others like it, is documented in printed material from around the time of Vlad III's rule. In the 1460s and 1470s, just after the invention of the printing press, a lot of these stories about Vlad were circulating orally, and then they were put together by different individuals in pamphlets and printed. Whether or not these stories are wholly true or significantly embellished is debatable. After all, many of those printing the pamphlets were hostile to Vlad III, but some of the pamphlets from this time tell almost exact same gruesome stories about Vlad, leading to the belief that these tales are at least partially historically accurate. Some of these legends were also collected and published in a book, 
the tale of Dracula, in 1490 by a monk who presented Vlad III as a fierce but just ruler. Vlad is credited with impaling dozens of Saxon merchants in Kronstadt, present-day Brasov, Romania, who were once allied with the Boyers in 1456. Around the same time, a group of Ottoman envoys allegedly had an audience with Vlad but declined to remove their turbans, citing a religious custom. Commending them on their religious devotion, Vlad ensured that their turbans would forever remain on their heads by reportedly having their head coverings nailed to their skulls. After Mehmet II, the one who conquered Constantinople, invaded Wallachia in 1462, he was actually able to get all the way to Wallachia's capital city, but found it deserted. And in front of the capital, he found the bodies of the Ottoman prisoners of war that Vlad had taken, all impaled. Vlad's victories over the invading Ottomans were celebrated throughout Wallachia, Transylvania, and the rest of Europe. Even Pope Pius II was impressed. Not long after the impalement of Ottoman prisoners of war in August of 1462, Vlad was forced into exile in Hungary, unable to defeat his much more powerful adversary, Mehmet II. Vlad was imprisoned for a number of years during his exile, though during that same time he married and had two children. Vlad's younger brother, Radu, who had sided with the Ottomans during the ongoing military campaigns, took over the governance of Wallachia after his brother's imprisonment. But after Radu's death in 1475, local boyars, as well as the rulers of several nearby principalities, favored Vlad's return to power. In 1476, with the support of the ruler of Moldavia, Stephen III the Great, Vlad made one last effort to reclaim his seat as ruler of Wallachia. He successfully stole back the throne, but his triumph was short-lived. Later that year, while marching to yet another battle with the Ottomans, Vlad and a small vanguard of soldiers were ambushed, and Vlad was killed. There is indeed much controversy over the location of Vlad III's tomb. It is said he was buried in the monastery church in Snagov, on the northern edge of modern city Bucharest in accordance with the traditions of his time, but recently historians have questioned whether Vlad might actually be buried at the monastery of Komana, which is close to the presumed location of the battle in which Vlad was killed. One thing is for certain, however. Unlike Stoker's Count Dracula, Vlad III most definitely did die. Only the harrowing tales of his years as ruler of Wallachia remain to haunt the modern world. So now that we have an idea of who Vlad the Impaler was, you can kind of make your own assumptions and opinions if Dracula was actually based off this man, or just maybe the name sounded cool to Bram Stoker at the time. It's hard to say. But how did Count Dracula influence the vampire culture as we know it today? If there's one thing we can take away from this whole topic is that Dracula was indeed a highly influential character in modern-day vampire lore. That goes without saying. But just how much? Well, let's look at his powers and his abilities to start. Now, in the novel, he is portrayed by using many different supernatural abilities and is believed to have gained his abilities through dealings with the devil. Chapter 18 of the novel describes many of the abilities, limitations, and weaknesses of vampires and Dracula in particular. Dracula has superhuman strength, which, according to Van Helsing, is equivalent to that of 20 strong men. He does not cast a shadow or have a reflection from mirrors, 
He's immune to conventional means of attack. A sailor tries to stab him in the back with a knife, but the blade goes through his body as if it went through air. He can indeed defy gravity to a certain extent and possess many superhuman agility traits, such as the ability to climb vertically and upside down in a reptilian manner. He can travel into quote-unquote unhallowed grounds, such as the graves of suicides and those of his victims. He has a powerful hypnotic, telepathic, and illusionary abilities as well. He also has the ability to quote, within limitations, vanish and reappear elsewhere at will. If he knows the path, he can come out from anything or into anything regardless of how close it is bound, even if it is fused with fire. He has amassed cunning and wisdom throughout centuries, and he is unable to die by the mere passing of time alone. He can, indeed, command animals such as rats, owls, bats, moths, foxes, and wolves. However, his control over these animals is limited, as seen when the party first enters his house in London. Although Dracula is able to summon thousands of rats to swarm and attack the group, Holmwood summons his trio of terriers to do battle with the rats. The dogs prove very efficient rat killers, suggesting that they are Manchester Terriers trained for that purpose. Terrified by the dog's onslaught, the rats flee, and any control which Dracula had over them was gone. Dracula can also manipulate the weather within his range, is able to direct the elements such as storms, fogs, and mists. Dracula is also known to change form at will, also known as shapeshifting, and able to grow or become small. His featured forms in the novel being that of a bat, a wolf, a large dog, and or fog and mist. When the moonlight is shining, he can travel as elemental dust within its rays. He is able to pass through tiny cracks or crevices while retaining his human form or the form of a vapor. Described by Van Helsing as the ability to slip through a hairbreadth space of a tomb door or a coffin. This is also an ability used by his victim, Lucy, as a vampire. When the party breaks into her tomb, they dismantle her secure coffin to find it completely empty, her corpse being no longer located within. Of course, one of Dracula's biggest powers is the ability to turn others into vampires by biting them. And according to Van Helsing, when they become such, there comes with the change, the curse of immortality. They cannot die, but must go on, age after age, adding new victims and multiplying the evils of the world. For all that die from the praying of the undead become themselves undead, and prey on their kind. And so the circle goes on ever widening, like as the ripples from a stone thrown in a river. Friend Arthur, if you had met that kiss which you know of before poor Lucy die, or again last night when you open your arms to her, you would in time, when you had died, become a Nosferatu, as they call it in Eastern Europe, and would for all time make those undeads that have filled us with horror. The vampire bite itself does not cause death. It is the method vampires use to drain blood of the victim and to increase their influence over them. This is also described by Van Helsing. The Nosferatu do not die like the bees when they sting once. He is only stronger, and being stronger have yet more power to work evil. Also, victims who are bitten by a vampire do not die, but are hypnotically influenced by them. Those children 
whose blood she suck, are not yet much worse. But if she live on, undead, more and more, lose their blood, and by her power over them, they come to her. With all the strengths, there must come some weaknesses as well. Of course, Dracula is a bloodthirsty creature, and that goes for all vampires, and he is seemingly unable to control it. At the sight of blood, he becomes enveloped in a demonic fury which is fueled by the need to feed. Other adaptations call this uncontrollable state the thirst. There are items which afflict him to the point that he has no power and can even calm him from an insatiable appetite for blood. He is repulsed by garlic, as well as sacred items such as crucifixes or sacramental beads. This is a quote from John Harker's journal in Dracula chapter 2. At the instant I saw the cut had bled little, and the blood was trickling over my chin, I laid down the razor, turning as I did, so half round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demonic fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe it was ever there. Placing a branch of wild rose upon the top of his coffin will render him unable to escape it. A sacred bullet fired into the coffin could potentially kill him, so that he remains true dead. Mountain ash is also described as a form of protection from a vampire, although the effects are unknown. This was believed to be used as protection against evil spirits and witches during the Victorian era. So there we have it. That is Dracula, possibly the father of all vampires and maybe the most influential upon the gothic and vampire culture that we have today. We also took a look at Vlad the Impaler, the possible, but not confirmed, inspiration for Count Dracula himself. It's interesting, as I always grew up knowing or thought I knew that Vlad the Impaler was the inspiration for Dracula, but it was nothing more than maybe a poster or a picture or an etching of a castle that Bram Stoker thought kind of looked neat and then described it as such as Dracula's castle. And then the name Dracula just sounded very literary. It had a lot of pull and push to it, given its meaning of devil. Just all around an interesting story. My name is Casey, and if you like what you heard today, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Any five-star reviews will be read on the podcast, so you have that to look forward to. If you want to find me on social media, you can do so at HorrorShotsProd, as in production, on Twitter, or HorrorShots on Facebook. If you do want to support the show in a more monetary way, you can do so as well at patreon.com slash horrorshots. Lastly, if you do want to maybe rep some merch, you can do that as well at my Redbubble store, and you can get the Ominous Origins logo, the Horror Shots logo, or a handful of original designs that I made up over the course of the few years. That link will be in the description as well. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next week.